What began in 2011 today has become a reality that we could not be more thankful for. What he has done for us at Christ Church and what he is doing in and through us at Christ Church. Who could have imagined that this space would one day be the one that the Lord would give to us? And so upon such an occasion in our new Book of Common Prayer, we're given some text to remind us to keep the main thing the main thing. And I was so looking forward to the bishop preaching today. But he spent several days in hotel hospital with pancreatitis and is going to have his gallbladder removed later next week. And so I offered, Lord, if it would make your life easier, I'll be glad to bring forth the word. And he said, thank you, Gene. Please do. And so what you'll notice in these passages, which bring back the older prayer book passages, remind the church to be the church. Because as we enter the final week of Advent and Christmas week, and Christmas Eve is only a week from today, there's lots of confusion in our culture about who God is, what the holiday is about, and what the church is. And Jesus in this passage in the Sermon on the Mount is reminding us as readers how critical it is for us to, to discern true from false. We live in a world, and Jesus says there's a world that we live in that you're going to find presented to you that there are various ways to God. And people are going to make various claims, say this way is to God, that is way to God. And Jesus says, no, you need to discern the true from the false. He says, secondly, there's lots of teachers out there, but not all of them are to be trusted. Third, and most radically... And perhaps for some, most disturbingly, Jesus says there's lots of people who say they're Christians, but they're deceived. They're counterfeits. And so for the sake of time, and to show you that it is possible for Gene Sherman to preach a two-point sermon rather than a three, <laughs> I'm just going to teach on the first and third passages, because quite frankly, the false teachers are tied into... The first point. And with these attention-getting texts, we are forced to come to grips with our relationship with the Lord as well to show ourselves that we are living authentic lives. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles or on your device, whatever you have, to Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 13. The first point Jesus is making for us this afternoon is Jesus says, don't trust all the many ways to God that are presented to us. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus is saying here something that has been controversial, quite frankly, in every age saying everybody is on a road heading for a spiritual destination somewhere, one way or the other. Now I'm sure there's some people gathered here today that would perhaps disagree with that statement. 
And they might say, well, I'm not the religious type. I'm a common sense person. I believe only in something that's something that's hard proof for. I'm not a person of faith. Well, Jesus and the Bible and the church says, no, nah, you're mistaken. The philosopher Blaise Pascal was a Christian. And he made very interesting arguments to his skeptical scientific friends. They had a tendency to say the same thing. They would say, well, you're a Christian, but I'm a person of reason and a person of examination who needs proof. You live by faith. I don't live by faith commitments. Pascal would say, well, not exactly. You see, here's Mr. A and here's Mr. B. Mr. A is a person of faith. Mr. A believes in God and that there's judgment day and therefore there's a differentiated afterlife. There is a heaven, there is a hell. In other words, Mr. A believes that depending on my choices here, the afterlife, I'll be either saved or I'll be lost. Mr. B doesn't believe that, doesn't believe a differentiated afterlife, there's no such thing as salvation, etc., so Mr. B essentially is a kind of agnostic, doesn't believe in God or an afterlife. Mr. A is putting his faith on God and the reality of God and of course cannot empirically prove it to Mr. B. But Mr. B also is basing his life on faith. He can't prove or disprove empirically whether there's a God whether there's a differentiated afterlife, what is right and wrong. So actually, both of them, Pascal would say, are wagering. Both of them are making faith commitments. And it's the same argument today. Somebody says, well, I just can't quite buy that. Well, we can carry this to other areas of life as well, you know. Think of marriage. Science can't really help you with choosing the right spouse. Scientifically, nobody has ever seen love. You can't put love under a microscope. Science is studying what brain chemistry has to do with emotions. But the fact of the matter is, when I looked at Kim when I was in college, trying to figure out whether I should ask her to marry me, whether she loves me and I loved her, whether we'll be happy together, and whether she's everything that I wanted her to be in a wife, my degree in exercise science wasn't worth spit in making that decision. It was a matter of faith. I developed some beliefs about God. And then I had to choose whether to step out on those beliefs or not. Was that a total leap in the dark? No. I'm just saying empirically most of the things that give you meaning in life. Beauty, love, relationships cannot be proven or disproven by empirical investigation. It doesn't mean you don't use your mind, of course. It doesn't mean that there aren't reasons for going this way or that way. It doesn't mean you can't examine and find out the authenticity or inauthenticity of these commitments. There are all sorts of ways to do it, but you can't prove it beforehand. And Jesus is 
saying everybody has faith commitments no matter who you are. Therefore, every one of us is on a road basing our lives and our decisions tomorrow on whether there is or is not an afterlife, whether there is or not a God in heaven who has spoken through the Bible. And everybody has developed life strategies and a basis in life commitments and have faith commitments. And Pascal is just trying to say to us, and our Lord is just trying to say to us, if you don't believe in Christianity, that's an irrational gamble. If you don't, at the very least, investigate the Christian truth claims. Have you ever really read the biography of John, which we call the Gospel of John? Have you ever really done that? Matthew, Mark, Luke, have you ever really talked to, to people about it? If you ever say, well, nah, there's no proof for that. I would ask, well, what's proof for your position? The only way to be really rational about your positions is to examine them. And admit everybody's on a faith path going somewhere. And you can't trust all the world's paths, Jesus is saying. And by implication, he's saying that all roads don't lead to heaven. They're all seeking God, the world says. They're all seeking and they all ultimately land up in one place called heaven. And Jesus is on a head-on collision with that statement. No one is on the fence. Everyone is on the road, one road or the other. And Jesus says the road is narrow in this passage. And it's hard. The way is narrow. Well, what's the way? Jesus in John 14 says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the world says, intolerant. How intolerant is that? Well, can we define tolerance, please? Let me talk to you a minute about what tolerance is. Is Christ and does Christianity preach intolerance? No. Because you have to make a distinction. Do you know where the, what the word civilization means? It comes from the word civil. To be civil is to be polite. Therefore, the entire concept of civilization is based on the idea that you can res show respect and courtesy to people who differ with you. Everything about Jesus' teaching indicates that we, when it comes to people who differ with us, there is every reason to say we don't treat people with just civility, we treat them with love. And we show civility and respect and concern for everyone because they're created in the image of God. That's social tolerance. But when it comes to theological tolerance, ultimate reality, Jesus says theological tolerance is impossible. Because two opposite truths that are diametrically opposite cannot both be true. And Jesus, I think, here is proving that theological intolerance is impossible. You can't say all roads lead to the top. I have met those who would say, you know, you can't make that judgment. 
you can't really make that judgment unless you're walking in that other person's shoes in another worldview. You have to be inside that worldview to make that statement, Gene. Well, that's not true. We can know what other people believe, what they say. And as soon as you sit in judgment on that particular religion, then you're really denying your principle. For instance, when you say to me, I mustn't try to convince people of the truth of the Christian faith, what you're saying is that your view is superior to mine and that I must convert to yours. You see what's happening? I want you to abandon your inferior view of religious truth and take my superior view. You see? You're doing the very same thing you say I shouldn't do. And all world religions would agree that we don't agree on the same thing. Why are you having a problem with that? Jesus is the one who came, though, above all worldviews as God in the flesh suffered on the cross, died, rose again, and ascended. He's the founder who claimed that. No others claimed that. Islam and Judaism said God could never become a human being. Buddhism and Hinduism says God often could become a human being. But unlike Hinduism and Buddhism, Christianity says, no, we don't believe in the reincarnation of God. We believe in the incarnation of God once and for all. So Jesus was either a megalomaniac or he was who he said he was. And all I'm trying to say is when you say you can't judge between religions, is to judge between religions. So it's important to never, never say all roads lead to the same place. Jesus says no and common sense says no. It's impossible for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. He also says these two roads not only converge, he says one of them is easy and one of them is hard. The word is hard, narrow. The word broad means easy. And if you were born in America, you grew up speaking English and it became natural to you. My son works for Duolingo. When you open up the Duolingo app, the little Duo Al dances, Daniel did that. So enjoy. You're welcome. <laughs> you learn a language, but what I've learned, it's hard to learn French, even with Duolingo. You've got to put some work into it. Christianity is something you're not born into. Christianity is never something that just happens to you. It's never something you're just raised in. In order to put your faith in Christ, it takes an act of the will. It will take moving into something that feels unnatural as you surrender to Jesus Christ. Verse 13, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. That's the first point. Don't trust all those other ways. Look to Jesus Christ. Secondly, you have to distinguish between authentic Christians and counterfeit Christians. I told you it gets hard. 
Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Then Jesus tells a parable. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. There was a man who built a house on the rock. And when the rains came and the streams rose, it was solid. Another man built his house on sand. When the rains came and the streams rose and the wind blew, it fell. What is Jesus saying here? Two men, two homes on the outside of the naked eye, they both looked identical. But one's on sand and one's on rock because they are two entirely different foundations. And Jesus is saying it's possible for us to call Jesus Lord, sitting alongside each other in the same church, who in the last day are going to find out that some of them he never knew. As we read this passage, little beads of sweat start to form. If we really are paying attention to what we're reading. And Jesus gives three characteristics of both groups. Notice the first characteristic is orthodoxy of doctrine. We're told that these people on the last day came up to Jesus and called him Lord. In the Greek, that's the word kurios. The Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, this was the Bible translated from the Old Testament Hebrew into the Greek. In that book, the name Yahweh, the name Jehovah, the divine name given to Moses, was always translated kurios. So the Greek-speaking Jews, anybody who called kurios was being called God. They came to Jesus and they called him God, which means they're orthodox in their doctrine. They know he's God and they believe he's the divine son of God. The second trait is that they are emotionally involved. They don't just say Lord, they say Lord, Lord. It's a Semitic uh, tool which ancient Jews used to... imply intensity of emotion. We see this when Jesus looks at Martha and Mary. Martha's busy and he goes, oh, Martha, Martha. When David is mourning the death of his psalm, Absalom, he doesn't just cry Absalom, he goes, Absalom, Absalom, oh my son. And these people don't just say Lord, they say Lord, Lord. These people aren't simply orthodox in their doctrine. They're emotionally involved. They're excited about Jesus. They weep in the worship service. They raise their hands. They're really involved. And the third trait both these groups share is is that they're both involved in ministry. See, on the last day they'll say, Lord, Lord, and they'll be emotionally involved. But they also drive out demons, perform miracles. And Jesus never says, liar, you didn't do that. He doesn't say that. Of course they did. They were teachers of the word. They healed people. 
They did miracles. They led people to Christ. They turned people's lives around. And what does he say? I never knew you. Wait a minute. He didn't say, I don't know about you. Jesus isn't surprised. He doesn't look at them and say, who are you now? He knows who they are. He doesn't say that. He says, I don't know you. The word know means I've never had a relationship with you. He doesn't say to them, well, you must be Christians who've backslid or something. He says, I never knew you. You see the logic here? Is there anything wrong with orthodox doctrine, emotional intensity, deep ministry? No. As a matter of fact, every real Christian will also have those three traits. But these are also those traits we see in people who on the last day are rejected by Christ as inauthentic Christians. So let me put the logic this way. The absence of these three traits demonstrates you're not necessarily a Christian. But the presence of these three traits does not demonstrate that you are. So what's Jesus' point? There are two indicators in this passage of authentic Christianity. And those are Jesus as Lord and fully grasping the grace of God. The lordship issue and the grace issue. The lordship issue is this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. These people have an intellectually stimulating faith. They have an emotionally gratifying faith. They have a socially redemptive faith. And we all want that. But it's possible to want all that and yet not want God. Not to really want God. Because if you really have God in your life, you really have surrendered your will. And that shows the difference between someone who's actually trying to use God and those who are trying to serve God. I've had many people say to me over the years, I, I, want, I want the benefits of Christianity. I love the beauty of Christ. I want this sense of meaning in life. I want all these things. But is it all worth it? I really don't want to do that cost. I'd like to have all these things, but I'd like to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. I don't want to be in a position where I'm not in control and decide for myself. That person's never surrendered their will. What they're really saying is, how can I be happy and still keep control of my life and call myself a Christian? The answer by Jesus is, well, that's impossible. You have to abandon your self-will and abandon your hope or abandon your hope. You cannot hold on to both at once and that's the message of the Christian gospel. So here's the first mark of a real authentic Christian. The real authentic Christian surrenders their will. The mark 
is a more, not necessarily a more moral person, greater character than the inauthentic Christian. Do you think that's what we're saying here? No. The mark of an authentic Christian is the one who does the will of the Father. That Christian is teachable. You can tell an authentic Christian from an inauthentic Christian by how that Christian takes criticism. The chief repenters, you know. The people who, when you correct them, they're quick to say, you know what, you're right, I'm sorry. I was wrong. They're the quickest to repent. The inauthentic Christian, when you give them some constructive criticism, they say, what right do you have to tell me that? They jump down your throat. They think you're unreasonable. How dare you say that to me? The one who does the will of the Father is somebody who says, I surrender my will. Any part of my life is God showing me through his word, through the Holy Spirit, through a sermon, or through a book, or through some providential circumstances in my life where I see that I'm being obedient. The authentic Christian says, I want to know what that is and surrender it to him. I want to amend my life. For obedience is better than sacrifice. We learned that last year in the Read, Mark, Learn Wednesday Little Church. King Saul offered sacrifices and God says, I don't want you to give sacrifice. I want your obedience, Saul. And Saul says, Lord, Lord, haven't I done great deeds in your name? Exactly what the people said here in this parable. But the one who does the will of the Father, who surrenders his will, that's the sign. Second sign is the grasp of the grace of God. Look at the two houses. They're both built. They both look the same. You know what those houses are made of in the parable? Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? Orthodox doctrine, service, teaching, ministry. In other words, all those people were presenting to God what they do. Jesus Christ, the other house, that's on sand. The others presented it on only what he did for them. So if you look at your orthodoxy, your emotional involvement, your service for God, and you notice your life isn't going very well, and you're like the psalmist in Psalm 73, in vain have I kept my hands clean, in vain have I kept my heart pure, in vain I work my fingers to the bone for this God, and what does it get me? Lots of things aren't working out for me, I've tried so hard, I've been good, I should get an answer to my prayers. I should have some favor. I've done these good things and God should accept me. That thinking is like the foolish man who built his house in sand. Because the foundation is your moral effort, your religious activity at its foundation. But an authentic Christian is someone who comes and says, Father, my repentance is half-hearted. My affection for you is cold. 
My prayer life is half-hearted. I fell again and again and again, and yet your son died for me. He died in my place for me. And you welcome me back over and over. Thank you. What does it mean to build a house on the rock? It simply means to admit that a person can only be a Christian by the grace of God alone in Jesus Christ. Paul expresses this beautifully in Philippians 3, verse 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Did you hear what Paul said? I count everything as a loss. That means until I see all my efforts as inadequate, until I realize I've been saved strictly by the grace of God alone, and only then will my house be built on the rock of Christ Jesus. The, leadership, the lordship issue and the grace issue. People on the last day who will say, Lord, Lord, what do they say? They're going to say, Lord, look at all our accomplishments. There will be others who will be like the tax collector in Luke 18 that says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I rest and trust in you alone. The grace of God leads to a surrender of the will, brothers and sisters. Do you know what else it leads to? You become personal with God. That's why Jesus says, I never knew you. The inauthentic have an abstract relationship with you, but you believed in me. You intellectually knew me. You emotionally knew me. What happens when you grasp the grace of God and surrender the will is he becomes real in an increasing measure. The difference between the inauthentic Christian and an authentic Christian is the prayer life. The inauthentic Christian just shoots up a flare. The authentic Christian goes to the Lord. There's no issue of, there's no sense of personal dealing with the inauthentic Christian. There's no sense of the presence of God in their lives. An authentic Christian is somebody who says, I'm saved by grace, I surrender my will to you, becomes teachable, humble. And the next thing you know, God reveals himself to them in an increasing manner. The Bible becomes a love letter. It's truth or that by which God heals you, changes you, thrills you, disturbs you. You have a relationship with him now. You know him instead of just knowing about him. And he says, he really says, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
welcome home, Christ Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would grant everyone in this room might apply this text in their heart. It's a fearsome text, and we know, Lord, you don't like to disturb us. You desire to comfort us. And I pray no one here who really believes in you from the heart, who grasps grace, has surrendered the will, will be put in any doubt by this sermon or by this text. I pray that many people who are not right with you will have the secrets of their hearts revealed, will have the foundations of their lives revealed, and they might seek you both as Savior and Lord. And Father, I pray for my Christian friends here. Help them to see that as they go through various storms in life today, Help them to see that if their house is shaky, it's because their relationship to the foundation is not as it should be. Help them to make a more deep surrender to your lordship with their will. Help them to have a deeper grasp of the grace of God so they may solidly be on the foundation. That all the rainstorms and all the windstorms of life cannot possibly shake their house cannot shake their souls, cannot shake them. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray, amen.